I'm Professor Laura Empson. And I'm David Morley. And this is Leading Professional People. In this series, we bring together cutting-edge theory and first-hand experience to offer in-depth insights into the unique challenges of leading professional people. And in this episode, we'll be exploring the question, in a global organisation, how do you achieve alignment across the local offices? And we'll be speaking to Philip Davidson, who's the global COO of KPMG. But he's also been the managing partner of KPMG UK. So he's particularly well placed to explore this global versus local question. Laura, I'm a bit worried about this episode. Surely this whole global local thing has been done to death. I mean, are we really going to be coming up with anything interesting to say about it? Well, yes, of course we are. I mean, the reason this question seems old to you is that it embodies a timeless paradox. There's an inherent tension that can never be resolved. In a sense, this global local paradox is is much the same as irresolvable identity struggle that each individual professional must grapple with, only it's on a massive scale. Oh my God, that sounds really profound. I thought it was just about who has the power and how do you split the profits. Well, bear with me here. There's a fundamental paradox within the human psyche. We all have an urge for individuation through establishing a clear sense of ourselves as as distinct and as autonomous individuals. And it begins right at at the very beginning as babies when we come to understand ourselves as, as separate from our mothers. But alongside this, alongside our urge for individuation, is our search for validation, to feel part of something bigger than ourselves through identifying with and and by belonging to a social group. So are you saying that professionals are struggling to return to the womb somehow? Uh, I mean, Laura, what on earth has this got to do with global alignment? And do you really think this is a great idea to be discussing this with a COO of one of the biggest firms in the world? Well, whether they realise it or not, this is the dynamic that underlies everything that the leaders of global organisations grapple with on a daily basis. Because at work, professionals want autonomy to be themselves, to self-actualise, to achieve their potential, however they choose to define it. Yet at the same time, they want to be part of an organisation, to belong to a gang of people who are interested in the same things as they are, even if that thing is just about making money together. So as we discussed with Ian Davis, the partnership forms an elegant way of, of reconciling this individual collective tension. And what holds that tension together and prevents the organisation from splitting apart are the governance structures, the performance management systems and the cultural norms, which all work together to knit a bunch of autonomous professionals into a collective whole. Okay, which of course gets much more complicated as a firm gets spread out over multiple countries and gets bigger and bigger. So I think I can see what you're driving at. You're saying this global local tension, it's not just some kind of management tension to be resolved. It's its a perpetual struggle and it goes right to the heart of what it means to be human. That helps explain why it's so complex and frustratingly difficult sometimes, but I still think it's about power and splitting profits. Well, how did you make it work at Alan Novery? I mean, you were once a London-based firm, but you grew rapidly through acquisition to become, you know, one of the the big global law firms. I remember a time once, and I used to tell this story, that when I was managing partner, I called up a partner in one of the big four accountancy firms for some advice in a particular jurisdiction outside of the UK. I said, can you refer me to one of your colleagues in this country? And he said, well, I could, but actually I'm going to recommend you go to another firm because I don't think we've got people with the right quality in that country. 
I remember being amazed by that because that would have been a hanging offence in A&O. It, it, it was inconceivable that we would be referring uh, clients to other firms outside our network where we already had lawyers who were capable of doing it in that country. So I, I thought that was extraordinary. Well, at least this big four partner you spoke to, at least he was being honest. I mean, surely that's better than perpetuating this fiction that you're a globally integrated firm offering a seamlessly consistent quality of service. Yes, but I think the strength of the system that we had was that there was such a drive to refer work within the firm that if there was a quality problem, there would be a really major clamour coming from partners in other jurisdictions demanding that I deal with it. I mean, we just couldn't uh, tolerate that kind of uh, fall off in quality anywhere in the world. Right. So the partners wanted to, the centre to have more power to deal firmly with other countries, just not with them. Yeah, it was incredibly sensitive if the centre was seen as taking power away from the countries. I think I would advise people dealing with this issue, as I did, to, to think about how the relationships were. I knew most of the partners, almost all the individual partners around the world. So in a sense... I didn't have to resort to formal power to um, exercise influence because I could rely on my informal uh, influence. But I guess that doesn't work once you grow beyond a certain size. And then we were over 500 partners, uh, but big four firms are over 15,000 partners. So I guess there's a point at which you have to become more corporate in your structure. You can't rely so much on the informal. David, did you know that PwC is present in 50% more countries than McDonald's? No, I didn't know that. It's a really weird statistic. And of course, the big four have an additional challenge to deal with. They're attempting to deliver a seamlessly integrated global offering to their global clients, whilst conforming to a wide variety of regulatory regimes in their individual countries, yet knowing that wrongdoing in any one of these individual countries within the network can generate significant reputational risk for the rest of the global network. Why is Philip the right guy to talk about this? I want to talk to him today because I know him well from when he was the UK managing partner. I served on the board of KPMG as an independent non-executive for three years. Um, in the UK, all the big four firms are required by the UK regulator to have the equivalent of independent non-executive directors. And I was chair of the Public Interest Committee in that capacity. And one of the questions the regulator always asked me at one of our regular meetings was, how is KPMG managing network risk? The regulator was very worried that one of the big four firms in the UK would be fatally wounded by problems that had arisen in one of the other offices, one of the far-flung offices elsewhere in the network that was quite outside their control. Okay, so I'm buying into the idea that the global local issue may be more interesting than I first thought. Yeah, and I think Philip will be the ideal man to explore this with because he can see both sides of the debate so clearly, having held such senior roles both at a country and at a global level. Philip, thank you for joining the podcast. Great to have you here. I'd like to start with what may seem a very simple question to you. So in a federated partnership like KPMG, what exactly does a global COO do? My job is to execute our collective strategy. So we have a, a strategy that's been agreed by all of our 150 member firms. And my job is to help those member firms, encourage them, corral them to uh, execute on that collective strategy. 
essentially the collective strategy is driving at our ambition to become the most trusted and trustworthy professional services firm and to take market share from our competition. And we've got a couple of core internal pillars, uh, which are consistency and accountability. Uh, and my job is very much about driving consistency and accountability with the aim of getting to our ambition through the collective strategy. And how does it differ then, Philip, from, let's say, the global CEO? The global CEO is also our chairman. That's Bill Thomas. His job is to work with the global board and develop the collective strategy. Now, I play a part in that as well, but my role is all about execution. So in that sense, in another organisational setup, your role would be more like being the managing partner? Yes. Yeah, so when I was in the UK firm, I was the managing partner and had a similar role, which was to execute the strategy that was developed under the auspices of the UK chairman. So yes, it's a similar role in a partnership. A network organisation, a federated firm like KPMG is essentially a partnership of partnerships. A lot of this, I guess, in the context of in the accounting sector is going to be about managing risk, but also about maximising synergies across the network. So big question, how do you decide when to drive for this kind of global consistency and when to accept local differences? It is a really, really good question. And it's fundamental to us figuring out how best to run the organisation how to maximise the likelihood that we'll achieve our ambition of uh, trust and trustworthiness and growth. And the way that we try to balance local and global is to say that the growth comes at a local level. Our mem when our member firms grow, we collectively grow. We want our member firms to be as entrepreneurial as they can be. They are closest to the clients, and to the markets in which they and we all operate. However, we have to have certain areas where we absolutely collaborate together. Quality has to be something that we look at together at a regional and then a global level. The way that we invest in technology, increasingly technology is phenomenally expensive for an organization like ours to invest in. And any one member firm is unlikely to be able to develop all of the technology that's necessary to deliver, for example, an international audit or a big transformation of a listed PLC. So we have to be able to invest together to be able to have the technology that our clients and the entities that we audit require. So there are always going to be certain things where we have to do them together to deliver quality, to deliver the service that is required by our stakeholders. But we try to balance that by giving enough freedom, enough latitude to our member firms to be entrepreneurial. And that is, it's a constant evaluation of, are we getting it right? Consistency of quality is obviously key to your success as a global firm. I think it's difficult to be credible globally if you can't maintain that consistency of quality. One of the ways that law firms have traditionally done that, not all law firms, is by being one partnership. So certainly that was my experience. So that every partner in the world, if you like, shared in one profit pool. And um, that put a tremendous amount of peer pressure on the individual partners around the world to perform to standards because they heard about it pretty quickly from other partners in other parts of the world 
if they weren't delivering. What kind of levers do does a firm like KPMG have to enforce that consistency of quality? The first thing I would say is that when you are in an organisation that has nearly 12,000 partners, even if we had a single profit pool, it wouldn't be the end of the story. That wouldn't give us in and of itself the tools. Personally, I believe that a partnership only operates in the real spirit of a partnership to a certain size, to a certain number of partners. And after that, you have to build in uh, layers of control and management to overcome the fact that peer pressure operates only to a certain level. So we have built in those additional controls. So starting at the top, the global chairman has input into the goals and the assessment of the country senior partners of our board member firms that represent over 80% of our organisation and therefore influences their compensation. Our global head of audit likewise is involved in setting the goals and the assessment of the heads of audit of our countries around the world. And so on through advisory tax, our head of people, uh, myself as global COO, I I'm involved in setting the objectives for our COOs around the world. So we have that mechanism that allows us to cascade our global goals down through the organisation to at a member firm level and, and inside member firms. So that's one mechanism, and it, it goes right to your point that it's about the behaviour of the partners, because that is designed to ensure that the behaviour is consistent and there is accountability within the partnership. And then, of course, we've got the first, second, third lines of defence in the organisation, first line of defence. We want the best quality work delivered by all of our people every day. But second line of defence, we've got reporting of quality metrics back up from the member firms to regions and to global. And then third, we've got personnel at the global and regional level who are going and testing organisations on a regular basis in much the same way that regulators do around the world. That's fascinating, Philip, and there's so many follow-up questions I want to ask. I'm trying to discipline myself here. When you talk about these various different people with global roles who have input into goals and assessment of people at national level, I'm interested in the relationship between the people in the global role and the national role. So the country heads elect the global chair, don't they? Correct. But does anyone elect you or does the chair select you? Uh, the chair select me. Okay, so the chair would be selecting the global head of audit and all that kind of thing. Correct. Okay, because in a conventional partnership where there's more of a kind of reciprocal elected relationship between the people you are having oversight on have also chosen to put you in that role. But your structure is much, much more driven from the chair. So the election of the chair is a really important decision. Is that have I understood? Correct, yeah. So the global board, which, as I say, represents the member firms on the global boards, about 24 of them represent the vast majority of the organisation. Those individual board members elect the chairman. The chairman then has the ability to elect the global management team, global head of audit, tax, advisory, global COO, etc. So, yes, the election of the chairman is a critical 
piece of our overall governance and, and organisational approach. Because these roles have real teeth. They're not just sort of nice ambassadorial fly around the world encouraging people type of jobs. Correct. Yes, they do have real teeth because they are setting the goals and objectives of the individual heads of audit, advisor, etc. around the world. But they're also really important roles because each member of the global management team chairs a steering group. And the steering group is formed of the eight largest countries and the three regional heads. So the global head of audit chairs a steering group of the heads of audit of the eight biggest countries and the heads of audit of the three regions. And it's that group of 12 people who are responsible for the majority of the decisions relating to our global audit practice. And that's replicated for each of the functional areas within the business. And what we say is that a global decision is a decision that's made by one of those steering groups or the global board. A global decision is not a decision that's made simply by people like me, by people on the global management team. We have to run our organization with some element of consensus as well as that those elements of control that we were just talking about. And that consensus is an important part of the DNA of my organisation. So your authority and your legitimacy is, in effect, constantly renewed by this group of people who are there acting on behalf of the global partnership as a whole. Correct. What's interesting to me is how do you resolve the tensions that inevitably occur between the local and the global. So at its highest level, you would say we want global consistency of quality. But of course, people's views differ as to what is quality and how do you attain that quality and how do you deliver it? How do you resolve those tensions typically? So the key place in which those tensions are discussed, debated and hopefully resolved are those steering groups where we do have the whole organisation represented in a single room at a single time. If it can't be resolved in those steering groups, then it will be escalated to the global board. And the global board, the country senior partners of the 24 largest countries, they'll debate the issue. And that is the ultimate decision-making body. So they'll decide where we go next. And does it ever happen that that process is followed and, and a global view is expressed? And then for one reason or another, either it hasn't been communicated or people didn't want to hear it, it's ignored. Well, yes, it does happen. And I think in any organisation, when a decision is made that somebody who is often party to the decision doesn't like, one of the things that they might try is to imagine that that decision didn't happen and continue as they were. Um, but then... Sounds familiar. But, but then that's my job. As the global COO, the decisions of the global board often fall to me for implementation. Uh, and so that accountability and consistency point that we talked about, that's for me to resolve and to drive and encourage and build consensus around. I'm really interested, the way you lay it out, it sounds you know, so elegant and so robust. But I'm really intrigued as a firm grows from something much smaller than you were. So, you know, maybe just, you know, 500 partners. At what stage do these kinds of global structures start kicking in? How much of a pushback is there? I mean, I know you've been at KPMG a long time now. Can you remember yes. when it was more sort of haphazard and messy than this very elegant structure you're describing now? 
Yes. In fact, I would say even 10 years ago, it was substantially less robust, less elegant, to use your words, than it is now. And we've gone through an evolution just in the last three years. Bill Thomas, our current chairman, took office about three years ago, and it coincided with our crisis in South Africa, where our quality was really in focus. And some of the decisions that our firm in South Africa had made were being rightly questioned by a whole series of stakeholders. And that crisis coincided with a number of other quality crises that we had around the world. Now, we weren't alone in having quality crises, but when you have a crisis of quality, when you're a professional services firm, it feels like you're the only one that is having that crisis. And it cut to the very heart of the organization. And what Bill set out to do was to ensure that when we looked forward, we would look forward with an approach, a strategy, and an organizational structure and governance that properly reflected where we'd got to, reflected the fact that we are now nearly 12,000 partners. That's a lot of partners around the world. We're 220,000 people. And you have to have a different approach to governance when you're 220,000 people than when you are 20,000 people or even 100,000 people. And so over the last three years, we've been adjusting our governance to make sure that we have all of the tools in place to ensure that we can continue to be the federated organization that we want to be, but with the controls and governance that ensure that we're focused on consistency and accountability across the organization. How do you stay grounded yourself? As Laura knows from her time working with KPMG, KPMG partners are pretty forthright in coming forward if they think their leadership is becoming remote from the clients and the work that they're doing. And so I have plenty of people who act as sounding boards, whether or not I want them as sounding boards, giving me their views. And I have, as Laura said, I've been at the organization for a, for a long time. I've been in KPMG for 34 years now. And so I've got a strong network of people who are working with clients every day. Um, and they will very quickly tell me if it appears that we're going in somewhat of a different direction than they would hope. And we do try to get partners together and all of our people together in conferences and town halls and um, to hear their views. I personally spoke at our virtual all-partner conference last week where we had 11,000 partners on a virtual conference. But then the week before, KPMG International, which is the umbrella organization that I'm part of, we had 200 of our people from who are based in the UK together on a Teams call where they could ask me or tell me anything and so using both the informal and the formal, we get quite a lot of feedback. It's a feedback-rich environment. Yes, it is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was thinking, Philip, the fact that you've had such a significant national role as global managing partner of one of you know the very, very biggest countries in the KPMG network, that must give you credibility at the global level because... You know, no national managing partner can say to you, oh, you just don't understand what it's like, because, because you do. <laughs> yes, I think it is really important that in certain of the global roles, you really do need to have had a major 
domestic role in order to have exactly the credibility that you're talking about there. And it does help enormously. It helps um, not just in the credibility, but it helps in the decision-making. It helps me to put into context the debates that we're having at a global level that will need to be implemented at a local level. And it also helps me to understand the local issues that are coming up to global where we have to make a decision about future policy or or even an event that we need to react to. And if I may just ask one last question, Philip, you said earlier, in order to remain a federated partnership, dot, dot, dot. And I'm very conscious that of the big four firms, you are the most federated and other firms have sort of gone for a more conventional corporate structure, more more strictly controlled from the centre. What do you see the benefits of remaining federated? I can see it creates huge complexity and, and really quite significant headaches for you. So what are the benefits? One of the things that we've been able to do over the last three years as we've been putting our governance changes in place is to think really hard about the shape of the organisation and, and what it is that we want to achieve. And we're really clear that the federated organisation where quite a lot of our of power rests with the member firms is fundamental to the DNA of KPMG. And actually, a networked organisation is a fundamentally strong organisation if you have the right tools and technology to manage it properly. And if you've got the right fundamental spirit in the organisation, one of accountability and enough consistency. But a network is a robust organisational structure. When something goes wrong in one part of the network, the rest of the network can respond to help. In a corporate structure, that you can also respond, but it's in a much more vertical way. And a network can be much more agile. If we've got member firms who are close to clients and close to their markets, developing new ideas, if we can spot that innovation from the centre, get hold of it, take the best of the best and then push it back out to the network, that's a really fast way of innovating. Now, in the past, I would say we have not taken advantage of the organisational structure. We wondered whether it would be better to be more corporate. And I think we spent a bit more time wondering whether we should be more corporate and a bit less time figuring out the competitive advantage of a network architecture. And now that we've done that, actually, it's really exciting. Philip, thank you. As always, it's absolutely fascinating talking to you. And I really appreciate you giving up your time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Philip. It's been a pleasure. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. David, what did you find interesting about that? I mean, you thought we wouldn't have anything new to say about the global local topic. Well, I was really interested in the way he described the governance structure. He put a lot of store in the steering groups. They, The way he described it, they didn't sound like talking shops. They seemed to be, although they weren't part of the formal line of command, they were a really important mechanism for resolving the country global paradox. So if you want to challenge a decision of Philips, you weren't just challenging Philip, a COO, you were challenging that group of people as well. That was interesting to me. Yeah, I was really fascinated by the level of detail in which he described the governance mechanisms um, at a global level. I mean, I I recognise, yes, okay, I am a governance nerd. But for me, the really surprising and interesting thing was 
his response to my question, you, but how did you get to this point? How did you get like this? And when he started talking about the South Africa crisis and, and how they were able to use a crisis to force through this kind of very necessary change. And it was really interesting how that topic came up in the context of um, the federated structure. And I actually, I did like his response to the question, what are the advantages of a federated structure? I'd never heard it expressed quite as clearly uh, and uh Uh, with force uh, that he expressed it. I I did, I I suppose I felt myself wondering whether in a sense they were, they're making the best of of something that they've decided they have to live with. Um, I might have, if we'd had more time, I might have liked to dig a bit deeper there into inquiring what do they wish they had more power to do. Yeah, but you realise he's too smart to have actually answered that question on air. Of course, I know. You wouldn't necessarily want your partners to hear the answer to that because it might confirm their deepest fears. But I really did like the comments he made when I asked him how, when you're at a global firm, at a global level, in this enormous organisation, 225,000 people, how do you stay grounded as an individual? You're living in this feedback-rich environment Um that seems to be one of the strengths of partnerships. And that really resonated with me. This idea that you're living in an environment where constantly partners are coming to you and sharing their concerns, sharing their worries. And I think I've heard some leaders look at that as though it was some kind of carping and they object to the fact that everybody's complaining all of the time. But actually, I see it as a fantastic opportunity for continuous improvement of the firm. And I think that's how Philip saw it. Yeah. I mean, I think when uh, managing partners complain to me about their partners complaining to them, you know, I say, this is a sign that your partnership's alive. I mean, imagine the alternative, this sort of passive resistance or or maybe even worse, this kind of unthinking adoption of your of your initiatives. Actually, when when your colleagues push back at you, it's a sign that they care passionately about the firm as well as for, about themselves. I couldn't agree more. And I think you've got to, as leader, you've got to use the power of that feedback because most of it is focused on how you do things better as a firm and 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 I think you need to you need to be able to sort through the noise of that and pick out the nuggets of the things that are really uh, going to be important the interesting thing about philip is that he absolutely did not strike me as someone who enjoys lording it over partners which I think it would be a completely the wrong approach in a people focused business he just sees himself as a partner doing a particular role and he accepts the fact that there's a lot of people that are going to be telling him he's getting that wrong. And I can see why he's in that position, because he's really good at managing that. Yeah. So obviously, this podcast is about leading professionals. So let's let's just really focus in here, laser sharp, on, on what this interview has told us about leadership in this global local context. So I, for me, the big leadership question is, how do we get to agree the global strategy? He talked about his role in executing the collective strategy, but how did they ever get to agree that strategy in the first place? I guess we only have 50% of the picture here because obviously we haven't spoken to Bill Thomas, uh, the chair. It'd be interesting to know what he's responsible for. Yeah, if you think about my framework um, that we've discussed before, of thinking about these organisations as a combination of government structures, performance management systems, and cultural controls, 
It's the leadership that sits at the heart of this, tying individuals into the collective and countries into the global network. And Philip clearly has certain levers of power embedded in the systems and the structures. But in terms of this third element of the framework, culture, that probably lies more directly within the chairman's remit obviously, alongside strategy. And I think I would expect that to be true. Uh, But I guess culture and strategy are topics for another episode. Well, that's all for today's episode. And thanks for listening. And thank you again to Philip Davidson for joining us today. And please remember to subscribe, rate and review Leading Professional People wherever you get your podcasts.